Hello, welcome to my podcast, Post-Imperial China. This is Episode 8, Communist. my last episode, I spoke about the 1930 decade and how it was shaping up to be a wild, unsettled one. The 1930s also brought global financial depression to all of the major industrial nations. Even China was affected, not because of her financial or economic situation, but in spite of it. Japan used the global depression, her security, and economic interests in China as a basis to stage the Mukden incident in 1931 and seize control of Manchuria. For the nationalists in China and Chiang Kai-shek, the decade was going to be a challenge. In this episode, I'll spend the majority of it talking about the communist rise in China. Before I do that, I want to start with a brief discussion of Chiang Kai-shek's leadership of the Kuomintang and the nation. I will also go through the initiation and growth of the communist Red Army, the iconic Long March of the communist, that ended with the Xi'an incident in 1936. That incident brought about the temporary cessation of hostilities between the Kuomintang and the Communist. It also began the formation of the Second United Front to fight the Japanese. I talked about the huge opposition Chiang Kai-shek had to his autocratic powers, and that, as a result, the country verged on armed conflict. To mollify his opposition, on December 15, 1931, he resigned as the chair of the national government and commander-in-chief of the army. It was agreed a new government would be formed on January 1, 1932, in Nanjing. Lin Sen, son of Sun Yat-sen, was named the chair, and Su Qi was named the chief executive. That government, however, only survived 25 days. It failed to receive support with many leading party officials. Throughout, also, this period, the army remained loyal to Chiang Kai-shek, During its short existence, that government was constantly seeking Chiang Kai-shek's advice on a myriad of issues. By the third week of January 1932, secret negotiations had begun between the new government and Chiang Kai-shek for his eventual 
return. By February 1st of that year, he was back. Being cognizant of the opposition he had before, he agreed to a new position as head of military affairs. Nominally, anyway, he was not the chief executive of the national government. Although, in effect, he was the leader of the state and remained in that capacity permanently. Chiang Kai-shek's regime was neither totalitarianist nor democratic. It was something in between. As time went by, the Guomindang Party became less material and relevant and was not a significant political party. It was in charge by name only. Chiang Kai-shek ran the show. Opinions of him vary, as to be expected. To some, he was a flawless national leader. For others, he was a feudalistic militarist. His quick rise to power can be attributed to three things. His military leadership brought him fame, notoriety, and valuable connections. Two, he promoted the financial hub of powers. He understood the importance and value of the Shanghai bankers. At that time, Shanghai was China's largest and most modern city. Three, he adroitly sewed together warring factions and their cooperation he used to his advantage. Okay, enough of that subject for now. Just as the warlords and the Japanese are central to this story of China during this time, so is communism. And their role in the history is obvious, or it will be obvious. I'm not going to get into communist socialist tenets or beliefs, except to the extent of my discussion that is necessary to move this history forward. The decade after 1927, that began in 1928, nearly finished communism and socialism in China. Since 1922, the CCP was really nothing more than a branch of the Communist International or Comintern. Up to 1927, the Comintern ruled the roost. It controlled the CCP. That changed, however, after 1927, 1928, 1929, for a variety of reasons. Part of it was Joseph Stalin's preoccupation with events in Europe. Part of it was also because the nationalists were actively trying to destroy the Communist Party in China and the Communist movement in China. Also by 1931, the Comintern was losing its influence. By 1927, the CCP had an estimated membership in China of maybe 60,000. By the end of 1928, mainly due to the Guomindang's ejection of them from the Nationalist, their membership plummeted to probably less than 10,000. 
efforts by younger, more ardent believers such as Qiu Qiubao and Li Lisan worked to reshape the communist. The idea of rural sanctuaries grew, and they recruited peasants and farmers from those areas. But without a fighting force, it stood no chance of surviving the constant attacks by the nationalists. Armed insurrections, then, would be the CCP's strategy. From these early movements, the Red Army came into existence to eventually become the People's Liberation Army, or PLA. Mao Zedong and Judah grew the Red Army from a force in 1927 of about 5,000 to a quarter or half a million by 1933. On August 1, 1927, the Red Army launched an armed uprising in Nanchang, in Jiangxi province. There, they seized several regions. So began the Chinese Civil War. The war would see full-scale fighting until 1937, interrupted then with the war against Japan, and then resumed again full-scale fighting from 1945 to 1950. In September of 1927, Mao Zedong began the Autumn Harvest Uprising on the Hunan, Jiangxi province's borders. In these campaigns, the CCP realized it could recruit from the peasants of those areas that had suffered at the hands of the warlords and the Guomindang. The CCP allegedly offered to protect them but they were poorly equipped and the Red Army was forced to fight guerrilla style and the Autumn Harvest Uprising failed. Whether the CCP actually did or just said they did offered alternatives to the disillusioned citizens in those areas that were weary of the warlords and the Guomindang or that the CCP helped relieve food shortages and protect the peasants is not clear. And while I'm on the subject of the early life of the communist in China, I have to briefly explain the China Soviet Republic, also known as the Soviet Republic of China. It was established by the communists in China in 1931, initially led by its political leader Mao Zedong and its military leader Zhu De and others. The China Soviet would last until 1937. Geographically, it encompassed a large area of China, mainly, but not only in, Southeast China. Obviously, its existence was apart from the national government. It's been referred to as a small state within a state. What is remarkable is that, it is that it was allowed to exist at all. The China Soviet had its own army, bank, and currency. It collected taxes, kind of like what the warlords had done. And, as we will learn, 
were a major target for destruction by Chiang Kai-shek and his nationalist army. Beginning in 1930-1931, to deal with the violent threats posed by the communist, and this is part of the Chinese Civil War, Chiang Kai-shek and his nationalists began a series of five encircling army campaigns. These were launched against the communists in the regions they had a stronghold, mostly in southeast China. Chiang Kai-shek even bribed or induced several warlords to cooperate with and assist his national army in these campaigns. The basic idea was to surround those areas until submission. He had more troops and he was better equipped than the Red Army. The Red Army, however, chiefly through guerrilla tactics, was able to repel the first two encircling campaigns. The third one was aborted because of the Mukden incident. The fourth one actually achieved some early successes for the Guomindang forces, but eventually failed to destroy the Red Army, although the Red Army was substantially diminished. The fifth one began in late 1933, involving as much as one million troops. It nearly annihilated the Red Army, and by early 1934, things looked grim for the communists. I've arrived at the events known as the Long March. Details shortly. Let me say this. The events known as the Long March are shrouded in as much myth and legend as they are with fact. Separating them is the trick, I guess. I will not do so here, but I will provide a basic background. What was the Long March? Basically, it was a military retreat of the Red Army and the Communists from the Nationalist encircling campaigns and a relocation to north, northwest China that took place from October of 1934 to October of 1935. Mao Zedong claimed they had moved about 8,000 miles in the Long March and traversed 18 mountain ranges and 24 rivers. I do not know about the mountain ranges and the rivers. A more accurate and believable estimate put the retreat at around 3,500 miles, less than half of Mao Zedong's claim. In 1934, Four main lines of defense works supported by heavy weaponry surrounded the Chinese-Soviet areas of southeast China. Those lines would have to be overcome if the Red Army and the Communists had any hope to survive. They broke the first line in October of 1934. The second line was broke around Hunan province in November of 1934 and the third one in late November 1934. Nine battles had been fought, 110 regiments deployed by the Guomindang forces 
and warlords. Mao Zedong had been sick with malaria for most of the fighting. By December of 1934, the Red Army had broke through all the lines. When the Red Army broke through the defenses, it was estimated it had around 86,000 troops. The Red Army made their way west and then north. Continuously, they were attacked and harassed by nationalist forces. Along their way, there are, or were, numerous allegations that they stole food and forced conscriptions into their army. According to Mao Zedong and other chroniclers, the Red Army was welcomed along the way by the residents. The residents had been freed from the control of the local warlords. The Guomindang maintained the Red Army were barbarians. About halfway through the long march, Mao Zedong was reinstated as the Communist Party leader. There was plenty of alleged heroic incidents by the Communists in the face of horrible odds. The battle for Luding Bridge was one such incident in May of 1935. During the grand joining, as it is known by, Mao Zedong in the spring of 1935 joined up with another unit of the Red Army, then split their combined forces into two units of roughly 40,000 each. By October 1935, Mao only had about 4,000 troops. Eventually, reaching their objective in Shanxi province in northern China. He had lost about 90% of his army, a complete disaster. Despite the disaster, Mao Zedong's reputation grew. To some, the Long March was a success because it preserved the Red Army and solidified Mao Zedong as an undisputed leader of the communists in China. The communist new base was closer to the USSR and was generally an area the Guomindang did not control. Eventually, Mao's forces were joined by other units. And by 1937, his army had swelled to about 30,000. The communists eventually permanently encamped at Yan'an in Shanxi province and would remain there throughout the coming Sino-Japanese War. The first United Front ran from 1923 to 1927, uniting the Guomindang nationalists and the communists to fight the warlords and Japan. The purpose of the formation was to unify China. The second united front was again the joining of the nationalists with the communists, this time to repel the Japanese. As early as 1934, the CCP was pushing for a second united front. But even before 1934, there were calls for a united front soon after the Mukden incident in 1931. 
By the mid-1930s, understandably, Chiang Kai-shek was the most hated man by the CCP. But the CCP's attitude began to change. The reason? The Japanese. The Xi'an incident, named for where it occurred, took place for roughly two weeks in December of 1936. What happened was, Chiang Kai-shek was arrested by two of his generals while he was visiting their headquarters. The arrest of Chiang Kai-shek in Xi'an shocked the world, and even the CCP. The generals demanded an end to the war against the communists, and instead to redirect the nationalists' attention to the Japanese. Furthermore, the generals wanted the establishment of a national front to oppose the Japanese and to reorganize the nationalist government. The CCP were invited to negotiate Chiang Kai-shek's release, and they participated. Both Guomindang and the CCP agreed to establish a united second front against the Japanese. The Xi'an incident relieved the pressure on the CCP and allowed it to rebuild. After the incident, the two generals involved in Chiang Kai-shek's arrest were themselves arrested. One of them was executed. The Chinese-Soviet Republic lasted until September of 1937 and then dissolved by the agreement to unite in a second front. In my next episode, it will be fitting at this juncture, and as the events segue into the war with Japan, World War II, and the continuation of the Chinese Civil War, that I talk about the Nanjing government, Chiang Kai-shek, and China in general. Part of the segue also requires a discussion of, Jap- of Japan's activities as they involved China after the Mukden incident and up to the war with China. Please continue to listen. Things go wonky quickly. Thank you. It has been my pleasure.